Alright, so we are going to begin going through the book of Acts, and I was really torn about what book to go through. I've got several I've been wanting to do. I thought about going through Luke. I kind of wanted to go through Luke first, and then the book of Acts, but uh, Luke's going to be a tough one to go through, especially doing a chapter a week. They're very long chapters, and but um, so I decided to go to uh, the book of Acts. I really want to do 1 John 2, but I decided we're going to do that on Sunday nights, and I'm finally ready to go through the book of First John, really excited about that. But you know, I'm real. I, you know, I listen to a lot of preaching. Uh, I listen to different podcasts and things by IFB guys, and uh, I listen to some. I've heard some different conversations and just preaching from the book of Acts recently that just kind of really you know triggered some thoughts in my mind and just realizing some of the goofy stuff people do with the book of Acts. And I, you know, and there was a, there's a few questions that I have myself. For the book of Acts, and so I'm wanting to do a study through this book for my own personal benefit, but of course, always you know for the church too. But um, what I'm hoping to do as we go through this book is just you know for one, help people understand how to read the book of Acts. A lot of times, people uh, you know the Bible says enough where you can find something that says what you kind of need it to say to teach what you want to teach. And the book of Acts, I believe, is a book that's often abused pretty bad just because of the fact um, there are a lot of details in it. And it's a historical book, but it's also a unique book in the New Testament in the fact that it is. It's just kind of a, it's, it's a book just telling us the events that happened. There's, there's preaching in there. Uh, we have examples where it's literally recording their sermons when these guys are filled with the Holy Ghost. But sometimes it's just telling us what they did. And sometimes what they did wasn't technically right. And so we don't necessarily read it like we would read some of Paul's epistles where he's given instruction under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to the churches. And many times people, the weird things they do with the book of Acts, I just I find it troubling. And so I think it's important that we understand this book very well. I think it will help us uh, see through a lot of really bad teaching. And, um, and it's the same thing too with the book of 1 John. There's actually things we can learn from the book of Acts that will help us understand First John that I'm hoping to cover uh, in the next weeks too. Because I think most people, one of the things I've, I've read a ton of commentaries on First John. And they all just kind of say the same thing like they're copying each other. And they don't give a lot of good proof. And I don't like preaching things unique, you know. But at the same time, if I'm just not seeing it in the Bible, I just can't preach it. And... Uh, there's a couple of things that people typically do with these. And it's like, actually, I think if we go to the book of Acts, we can find out that we don't have to do that. And what that we find out people are doing there, they're depending on extra biblical sources to figure out how to interpret that book. And I don't think we need to do that. I think the Bible has all the commentary we need to help us understand what we're supposed to get out of it. So, uh, but I do think the book of Acts will help us understand a lot of difficult things in the new testament and so hopefully as we go through this too uh, we're going to point out some dumb things people preach from the book of acts and what we should get to a couple gems tonight just right here in chapter one so let's go ahead and start reading in verse one and it says a former treatise have i made o theophilus of all that jesus began both to do and teach could anybody tell me what the former treatise was that uh this individual had made the gospel of luke Okay. He had written, uh, the writer of Acts was also the writer of the Gospel of Luke, and he before wrote of all the things 
that Jesus began both to do, the book of Luke, it gives us the events and tells us the facts of what happened. But you know what else it does? It, may, it tells us what he taught. And let me tell you something. One of the reasons I wanted to go through Luke first is because there's a theme that is ignored throughout the book of Luke that once you see this theme, you can't unsee it. Too many times, most preaching that's been done from the Gospel of Luke, because it is, it's a, it's a big book, there's a lot to it, people are just isolating passages out of there and just to kind of preach what they want to preach. And they're missing the main thing that Jesus was trying to teach to the Jews during that time. And I, you know, I hate to tell you what it is and give you a spoiler, but it's replacement theology. <laughs> it's all over the Gospel of Luke. I mean, big time. And so I wanted to kind of do that first to set up some things that we're going to see in the book of Acts. But I'm hoping I can just kind of go back and refer to those things uh, as we go through this. Because, again, if I, I don't want to do a 24-week introduction to the book of Acts. Because by the time I preach the book of Acts, you're all going to forgot the introduction. So, uh, But there, there, there's a lot to this. But in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, it says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he's writing about the things that they believe, and the things that they believed were the things that everyone else was supposed to believe, and these things that other people were supposed to believe were things that they were eyewitnesses of. And so he wrote these things, wanting them to know, wanting them to have that we need these instructions. We need the Gospels. We, we need the doctrine and things that's taught in there. And so now we're in the book of Acts, he is, he is continuing the story. He ended with the ascension of Christ on the Mount of Olives with the Gospel of Luke. And now here we are in the book of Acts. And he, understood, he understands the importance of what he's writing. People are supposed to believe this. And this record that he is sharing, he's an eyewitness of it. And the people that witness these things believe all these things. And these things are to be passed down in the church. And that's what we're doing with these things. And so the book of Acts, it picks up right where the Gospel of Luke left off. And so in verse 2, it says, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So notice how it mentions the apostles whom he had chosen. Keep that in mind. The apostles whom he had chosen. How many apostles were there at this event on the Mount of Olives? Somebody tell me. How many? Eleven, right? Because Judas was dead. Okay? So currently, uh, yeah, there's, there's eleven apostles. And the things that they witnessed, these are infallible proofs. We've got plenty of eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul talked about how there was over 500 at one time that had seen Jesus. And he said the greater part of them remain unto this day. Some are falling asleep. So there's absolutely no reason for anyone to doubt the resurrection. Uh, this is, it's not just the Word of God, but it's, it's history too. It's, I mean, confirmed 
history, Jesus rose from the dead. And it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, Ye have heard of Me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So what was the last command Jesus gave them? He had told them to go in all the world and preach the gospel, but he gave a very specific instruction with that, and that was for them to remain in Jerusalem until they get endued with power from on high. They needed to wait for the Comforter to come. Jesus did not want them going out by themselves into all the world. He wanted them to wait until he came back as through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had told them that in the Gospel of John. He said, after I go, he said, I'm going to send him the comforter. And then he went on to say, I will come to you. And we see, and, that, and those, there's a great passage there to kind of help us understand the Trinity. But they were, they were supposed to wait for the comforter. That was their instruction. So keep that in mind also. So the Gospel of Luke takes us to the ascension of Christ. Acts picks up right where left off, even repeating some things. And often, you've probably all seen this before, in sequels to movies, a lot of times the beginning scene of the sequel, it'll show you something that you already saw on the other movie. What are they doing? They're just trying to remind you of where the movie left off, where the story's picking up, just to kind of give context to what's about to happen. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the book of Luke. And so he... He ends it where Jesus is giving them instructions to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost comes. And the, and the book of Acts, it records that very event. We're going to see that in chapter 2 where the Holy Ghost shows up and empowers them. And so something I'm hoping to highlight as we go through the book of Acts 2, and this is important we get this, because this is there's, a, there's another thing people are misunderstanding big time. And, and we've got to get a hold of this. And that is one thing we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts is what I'm going to call the vanishing away of the things of the temple that took place. Now, you and I, having full understanding of everything that took place, we understand that when that veil of the temple was rent, that Jesus was done with the temple. God was done with the temple at that point. We get that. But did you know that that was not fully revealed to them at that moment? They, they did not understand that. It was not even fully revealed to them. We're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, God is revealing more and more to them. And what people do, they often read through the Bible like it's chronological, and it's not. And so what they do is they read the book of Acts, and they see them in the New Testament era doing things that, you know, really that they, you know, they shouldn't be doing. But they didn't know that yet. That it hadn't been revealed yet. But then later in Paul's epistles... We read about him showing how those things are finished. You know, we read the book of Hebrews showing how these things were complete. And so then we think, you know, so when we read those, you know, a lot of times we, we've got to understand those books were written years after a lot of these events took place in Acts. And so even though it's all still technically New Testament era, there was a time of, and I hate to use this term because of the fact that your hyperdispensationalists like to use it, but the book of Acts is a transitional book. It kind of shows us the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Okay? It does not mean what these people teach about hyperdispensationalism is correct. They are dead wrong. And we'll show plenty of evidence of that as we go through it. But while I do believe immediately God was done with the temple, 
at the renting of that veil, it was not fully revealed to his people yet, the significance of that. So there are things we're going to see them do that are going to be puzzling to us because it's like, well, they shouldn't be doing that. But they didn't know that yet. And so um, don't be too hard on them. And you know what? Don't use those things to prove it's okay for us to do some of this Jewish stuff that your Hebrew roots people are trying to do today. We know better now. They did not know better then. So keep, keep all that in mind. It's very important that we understand this. Okay, We understand the significance of the rending of the veil. They did not yet. The story we're reading here, they did not know this yet. Okay, It was not revealed to them. So it says in verse 6, um, yeah, so in verse 6 it says, And when they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Now what the dispensationalists often do is they try to fill in these blanks for you to fit their dispensational theology. But here's what we got to understand about these verses here. These verses, what, what it's recorded here, does not prove anyone's position. Anybody can take this passage right here and kind of fill in the blanks of their own theology. I could do that, but that's just dishonest. This does not prove anything. I'm going to show you what they're going to do, because what they will do is they'll say, see, this proves right here that the you know disciples, they were looking for a kingdom that God has planned for the Jews. But they didn't understand that that kingdom was on hold for 2,000 years, and we're waiting for Daniel's 70th week, where God's going to go back to the Old Testament economy and start dealing with the Jews again because the kingdom's for the Jews. And then they'll just tell you all this stuff. And it's like, really? You get all of that from this right here? Just because they asked this question? But the thing is, Jesus did not answer that question. So you can't just fill in your own details right there. Okay? This doesn't. Now, I can fill in the blanks here too, but this passage isn't proof of what I believe. Okay? And they, they, in fact, I listened to one dispensational guy one time say, because Jesus said of the times and seasons you have no need that I write unto you, he did like a, what they call a Ruckmanite cross-reference. So where they decide that if we see those words times and seasons again, it's a cross-reference, meaning those are connected. And he went to 1 Thessalonians 5, but says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Times and seasons is about the Jews. It's about the kingdom. But when Paul's talking to the church, he said, you don't even need to know about that. And it's like, are you serious? Just because he used those same words. That, that's the kind of stuff people are doing with the book of Acts. That is not fair. That does not prove anything. Jesus just basically told him, you, know, you don't need to know that right now. And, and it makes sense because Jesus didn't have time right there to explain the entire book of Hebrews to them yet. These things have not been revealed yet. You know, and you know what they needed to understand all the things that they, you know, they're basically asking in that question? They need the Holy Spirit. But he hasn't come yet. He's not empowered them yet and indwelled them like he is with us today. That hasn't happened yet. See, Jesus is basically just telling them right here, you know what? You guys just cool your jets. Okay? You'll figure those things out eventually. But, you know, right now, here's what you need to do. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Just go to Jerusalem. When you get that power, then you're going to have plenty to worry about. And you know what? Uh, we're going to see what happened as a result of that. So, they were focused on restoring the kingdom, 
but it was not something they were supposed to be concerned with at that time. They needed to wait for the coming of the Comforter. So verse 9 says, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And let me tell you, he went up visibly and he's coming back visibly. That's the way he's coming back. And you know what? You point that out to pre-tribbers that think it's going to be like the secret rapture. You know what they do? Well, he's talking about for Israel. Because remember how they asked about that kingdom? This is referring to when he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. That's when it's going to be... Vi- no, no, you don't get to do that. Okay, And I get it, they were Jews, but they were also the church. This is the first New Testament church that we see here. And so he's coming back the same way he went, visibly. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. That's 11 men right there. These all continued with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together about 120. Now, something we need to, Understand as we're reading this here, again, it's giving us a record of what happened. It doesn't mean everything that they did was right or a command from the scriptures that we must follow and obey. It's important that we understand that. Okay, and, and let me ask you: Has Peter, so far in his history, you know, has has he has he had a history of just getting caught up in a moment and getting things right? No, what is his history? The only time he did get caught up in the moment and got something right was when he declared that Jesus was the Christ. And then five minutes later, Jesus had to tell him, get thee behind me, Satan, because he didn't want him going to the cross. So just you know, understand, Peter had a history of just getting caught up in the moment and doing dumb stuff. And he has not been empowered by the Holy Ghost yet. I mean, we're going to see Peter shine a little bit later in the book of Acts. I do not believe he's shining right here. Now, let me just tell you, this is... Mainly my opinion, what I'm reading right here. But you know what? When you hear the alternative views, it's their opinion too. I'm just asking whose opinion lines up with the Bible as a whole more. And, of course, I think mine does. If I didn't think my opinion was right, I would go along with the other opinion I thought was more right. And then my opinion would be right. You know? But at the end of the day, you know, we all do that to a certain extent. But you know, people can disagree on, on this to a certain extent. But I think what Peter's about to do right here was not what he was supposed to do. I do not believe he got this right. And so, um, you know, and I think it's okay too. like when we're reading through the book of Acts, it's okay for us to maybe take stories and see what they did and use it as precedent for what we do. But we can't act like these are Bible commands that everyone's required to follow to the letter for every situation. We can't do that. I've heard many missionaries my whole life. I've listened to missionaries at missions conferences and stuff. You know what they do? They get up. And they will show you an example of something somebody did in the Bible. And then they will show how they are patterning their ministry off of that example. But then another missionary will get up and he'll, he has a different kind of ministry, but he'll show an example of something like that in the Bible too. 
And, you know, but the problem is they all act like this is the Bible way to do things. And the truth is, it's like, well, you know, actually, I think there's actually more than one way to skin a cat. And I think you all are proving that by the fact that there was different ways they did these different things. There's a lot of ways you can do ministry. Do you know that that passage in the Bible where it says that, you know, it talks about them going from house to house. That doesn't mean the only way we're allowed to go soul winning is from house to house. That's what they did. Okay, and you know what? It's okay for us to say, well, they did that. We should, do, we can do that too. That's fine. But you know, if we see them doing something else too, do you know we can do that too? And you know, we're not more biblical. You know, maybe some people they mainly just hit the streets and try to find crowds or whatever. You know, we can't act like, you know, we are more biblical than those people are. Okay? At the end of the day, I think you need to do what's effective. Now, I don't think in most places in America today meant that street preaching is the most effective way of doing things. You imagine if we did street preaching here in Rock Falls? I don't think it would work very good in Rock Falls. First off, you'd mainly be yelling at cars driving by. And I watched a video of a guy I used to go to church with. He was doing that one time. This guy was a real goofball. And he went across the highway where they're driving 65 miles an hour, across the highway from an adult bookstore. And he was preaching against pornography and there was nobody walking and like cars are driving by 65 miles an hour and he's like just but he's preaching a sermon and just like yelling things as the cars go by nobody hears a word he's saying it was the weirdest thing you know it that's not the place for that but at the same time in some places in some cultures you know some cultures they might like to hear a guy get up. I mean, we see the Apostle Paul doing that at Mars Hill. Basically, you know, you could call that street preaching if you wanted to, I guess. It, it, it depends on where you're at. And I've heard people get up and they condemn street preaching. I, I don't think you can condemn it. I don't think it's always the best, but some places it might work better. You know, and, but then there's other people that act like you're not right with God if you don't go street preaching. It's like, you know, just do what's effective. Okay? And, in the, and in the book of Acts... We see him doing a lot of different things. And you know, if you want to use it as precedent, that's fine. But don't act like that's the only way there is to do something. I think that's ridiculous. That is not what we're to do with the book of Acts. It's just showing us what they did. I've heard a lot of people too, uh, they do that too, where they'll show them meeting in houses in the book of Acts. Therefore, church buildings are unbiblical. You have to have, you have to have church in a house in order to be more biblical. Really, do you have a command in the Bible that says it has to be done that way? Or is that just what they did in the book of Acts? Maybe they did it that way in the book of Acts because that was the convenient way to do things during that time. You know, that was probably really effective in a time, too, when you're under intense persecution. What do you think they'd have done to their church buildings if they'd have built them back then? But, you know, when we're in a place like America where we have religious freedom, it's not we can build a building if we want to. And we're not in danger, you know, of... Losing it. And even if we did, did burn it down today, we'd probably get a better building because of insurance. And a lot of church buildings burn down. And I'm always suspicious every time it happens. I, I'm, always, I'm always suspicious because it's usually too when they're struggling and things are tough financially. All of a sudden those building, church buildings burn down. It happens a lot. I, I shouldn't say anything. Ours might burn down. And, but, you know, you know I, I don't want that to happen. I would, but... Um, and yeah, then all of a sudden they get these nicer buildings, and I'm always just like, hmm, that was kind of that was kind of convenient. I, I know one church, very nice building, 
they were able to build it too because of insurance, but theirs got taken out in a tornado. So that was a little more legitimate. I don't think you can play on that. But anyway, uh, so again, what are they supposed to be doing right now? They are supposed to be waiting for power. That's the instruction. But that's not what they're doing right now. Now they have decided, Peter has decided, you know what? We need a 12th apostle. We need a 12th apostle. And I got Bible to prove it. He got up here like an IFB preacher. He, he, went, he went and he found a Bible verse. And we're going to look at that here. But look what it says in verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. Now he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch that the field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldama, which is to say the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, I'm just telling you, this is my opinion. I am not convinced he was supposed to do this. And I'm not even convinced he used the scriptures properly right here. I'm not convinced. I could be wrong. You want to argue about me? Argue with me about it. I won't be mad at you. But let's look at the scripture he was quoting. Now, all the commentaries I've read on this, they all say he's quoting Psalm 69.25. And Psalm 69.25 just says, Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. Okay. Now, that sounds like the first part where he said, Let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein. That sounds like that verse. But then, and his bishopric let another take. That's not what it says there. I mean, it seems like if nobody's supposed to dwell in their tents, it's like you're supposed to keep it empty. But it looks like, I don't know this, because I'm like, well, where is that in his bishopric? Let another take. Now, you can't find that word in the book of Psalms, but it kind of sounds like Psalms 109, verse 8, where it says, let his days be few and let another take his office. So I don't know if Peter's taking two scriptures and saying that they were both about uh, Judas, I don't know. Peter has not been endued with power from on high yet. So Peter could have been going full camp meeting preacher on this scripture right here and taking it out of context. I don't know. But, but either way you look at it, that doesn't seem like a strong scriptural case. And if Jesus chose the 12, like it said before, shouldn't Jesus choose the replacement? I mean, it kind of makes sense. And, and I believe, I believe Jesus did. Now, I believe it was the Apostle Paul. Now, there's different views on this, okay? But um, it seems like though Peter was trying to fulfill a prophecy, that usually doesn't work out well when people try to fulfill prophecies. And I, I don't think he got it right. And so it says, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, which is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, Show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered 
with the 11 apostles. So they basically took a vote, I guess probably amongst the 11. You got an odd number there. And Matthias got the most lots cast for him. And so they numbered him with the 12. And interestingly enough, we never see Matthias mentioned again. He's, he's, never, he's never mentioned again. And so what are some of these different views about the apostles? Because okay, first off, let me ask you this question. Was it necessary for Judas to be replaced? I mean, why do they have to have 12? Okay, and, it, you know, and if you can replace one, you know, why didn't they replace James after he got killed? Shortly later, he was the first one to die of the apostles, uh, James, the brother of John. Why didn't they replace him? And if they were able to replace him, then shouldn't there always be 12 apostles? Okay, but I, I do think they needed to replace Judas, but I only think it needed to be done one time. And here's why. Because in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, it says that Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there were, there are twelve thrones, there are twelve special places for the twelve apostles, and obviously Judas is not going to be on one of those thrones. Because we know that he went to hell. There's no doubt about that. So obviously, somebody's got to take his place. Now who was it? The schools of thoughts are either Matthias or the Apostle Paul. Now, the disciples, before the Holy Spirit came, they chose Matthias. I believe that Jesus later chose Paul. But what some people believe is that Paul was actually the 13th apostle. Right. And I'll tell you why here in a little bit, but let me tell you why I believe it was the apostle Paul. Almost every one of Paul's letters, I think there was two exceptions maybe, I'm just going to read through these real quick. But all of Paul's letters that he wrote, they start out with the same word, the token of his epistle that was written by his own hand. First word, Paul. I'm going to read these. Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother. 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Uh, Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle. Watch this. Not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay, now, all the other 11 apostles, they were not apostles of men. They were apostles of Jesus Christ. Matthias was not an apostle of Jesus Christ. Nobody could claim that. He was an apostle of men. There's, there's no doubt about that. Where the apostle Paul, like the other ones, he was an apostle chosen by Jesus Christ, and he specifically mentions that. Uh, it says in Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And Timotheus, our brother, 1 Timothy 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior. And Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. 2 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So I think the only uh, letters where he didn't mention that he was an apostle 
was in First and Second Thessalonians and Philemon. I believe those are the only ones. And so the dispensationalists, though, they want to teach he's the thirteenth apostle, and what because the, what they will say is because there was twelve apostles to the Jews, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles because it's their way of separating the Jews and Gentiles. Even though we've got a lot of scripture making it really clear that God made both one. That God broke down the middle wall of partition. But dispensationalists, they want, they, they want so bad there to be something special for the Jews. So they have appointed them 12 apostles. And so it, it does. if you put Paul in with the 12 and Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, it kind of puts the Gentiles with Israel, doesn't it? And that will mess up your dispensational theology quite a bit. So they kind of go along with what we see here in Acts chapter 1. And you know what? The Bible never comes out and condemns what they did. But there's no evidence that they got it right. There's no evidence that Christ backed it up. It seems like it was just ignored because we never see Matthias mentioned again. But yet we see Paul mentioned over and over again. And so, because uh, what they'll do too, in Romans 11 verse 13, they'll isolate that verse where Paul said, For I speak to you Gentiles... In so much that I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. And so because he was an apostle of the Gentiles, he's just completely separate from Israel. And, and they, just, they just tell you that. But again, it was, you know, it was a decision by the other apostles with them. You know, they all decided that, yeah, he's going to go to the uncircumcision while they were going to focus on the circumcision. And that doesn't separate them and make them, make them a part of a, a different group because they were still a part of the same, the same church. And we're going to see a lot of evidence of that as we go through the book of Acts. So, um, and so there's, so there are groups today who still claim to be apostles, but I think it's, it's wrong to use that term. Now the word apostle, it doesn't mean sent. And I've talked about this before. Uh, you know, we see guys like Barnabas, he was referred to as an apostle. Okay? but not as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, he, he was sent by the church. He was sent by the, he was, a, he was an apostle of the apostles. The apostles sent him to do different things. If we send somebody to do something, if you're sent somewhere, you could say you're an apostle. But are you an apostle directly of Jesus Christ? No, it, it's a completely different thing. And I think it's very confusing to use that term. And most groups too today that use that term, they act like they have some type of apostolic authority like the, the original apostles did. None of us have that, folks. And let me tell you something. We do have apostolic authority in this church, and that's because we follow the writings of the apostles. We have the written word, their written words. Now, they didn't have those things yet during that time. While they were, during what we're reading about right now, they don't have the New Testament written down yet. So how are they supposed to know what to do? You know what they did? They listened to the apostles. And so after the, the apostles all died, who were they supposed to listen to? Well, if you, historically what they ended up doing, they ended up going to the writings of the apostles. And they put those writings all together. And you know what they're called now? The New Testament. So we do have apostolic authority in this church because of the fact that we let what guys like Paul wrote dictate what we do as a church. So yes, Paul is still an authority over this church. So we need to move on. We've still got a lot more I want to try to uh, try to cover. So um, we do see in this passage 
that there was certain criteria that even they tried to follow you know, for the original apostles. Because um, it says in verse 16, it says, Men and brethren, the Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was the guide of them that took Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. So the guys that they chose from, these were men who were a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That was what they had chosen. And in verse 21, it says, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And so, um, the, or, um, lost my spot. Yes, yeah, so the men that they chose, uh, it says in verse 20, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they were choosing from people that had been around and been with them from the time of John the Baptist. That was a criteria that they came up with. So the thing is, if you're going to go off that precedent that they did here, if you're going to assume they got it right, then you also have to only choose people that were there during the ministry of Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, they're all dead. Okay? They're all dead. None of us were there at the baptism of John. So you can't do that. So... Um, in verse 24, it says, And they prayed and said, uh, Thou, Lord... Oh, we already read that part. Um, yes, in verse 25. Oh, let's read verse 24 again. It says, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two Thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Now, what's funny about this, this is a verse people will go to to prove that the Antichrist is Judas Iscariot risen from the dead. And what do they do? They'll say how the Antichrist is going to ascend from the bottomless pit. He was somebody who was, you know, and is not, and goes into perdition. Judas is also referred to as the son of perdition. They'll, and they'll do all these comparisons. And I do think there's obviously good comparisons because I think the same spirit that entered Judas is going to enter into the Antichrist. So obviously there's going to be a lot of comparisons. But then they'll just take this verse where it says he went to his own place and then just say there's a, that means a special place in hell, which happens to be the same place that John wrote about that the Antichrist ascends out of. Well... That's kind of a stretch making that connection. I don't see that clearly outlined in there, but yet that's what people will, uh, you know, people will take that and they'll just kind of run with it. I don't think that's the right thing to do. I, I think what it means when it says that he went to his own place, I just think it means, you know, he kind of got separated from those other apostles. You had those 11 that were together, that remained there with Jesus Christ, but Judas, he went to his own place, you know, and so. Uh, whether that's hell, whether that's a field of blood where his bowels got splattered all over the place, you know, I, you know, he's just he's his own thing in his own place. I think it's just their way of saying that he's separate from us. So you can't just take verses like this, folks, and just try to tie it into a weird doctrine like that. I think that's really goofy, and I just think it's very dishonest about the scripture. And so, uh, either way you look at it, this passage or the the, the chapter begins with Jesus giving them instruction to tarry at Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. 
And in chapter 2, we'll go ahead and read verse 1. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were uh, all with one accord and in one place. And you know the story. That's when the Holy Spirit showed up. That's when the Holy Spirit empowered them. And that's when we start seeing Peter become an amazing individual. That's when we start seeing Peter get some things right. And let me tell you something. You know what made Peter great? There's no doubt about it. It was the Holy Ghost. When Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost, he was unstoppable. He did great things. He preached great things. Thousands of people got saved through the preaching of Peter. But did you know Peter was still Peter? And Peter messed up sometime. And later, even the Apostle Paul had to withstand Peter to the face because he was doing some really dumb stuff and sending a bad message to the Jews and trying, and trying to appease those people. And why was he doing this too? Because, I don't want to get ahead of myself in the book of Acts, a lot of the things that vanished away of the Old Covenant, those things were revealed through the Apostle Paul. And, and again, you know, it, it had to be Paul to kind of nail Peter's hide to the wall on these things. Because it wasn't, it wasn't spelled like he should have known it. He should have been able to figure these things out. But again, you know, it was tough back then, folks. They didn't have the written word like we do today. So, you know, let's, let's give, you know, let's cut Peter some slack. But we've got to understand, these guys still weren't perfect, and I do. In my opinion, and we all have opinions about what took place here, I think that they made a mistake. I don't think God honored their choice of Matthias. I believe uh, the Apostle Paul was uh, who was supposed to do it. And he said, well, why didn't he show them somehow? Well, you know what? Why didn't Jesus answer their question about restoring the kingdom? Why didn't he give that to them? You know why? Because, again, some things cannot be understood by just verbally articulating those things. They're revealed by the Holy Ghost. For example, we see in the book of Luke, Luke outlines this very clearly, Jesus spelled out to them, that he was going to die and three days later rise from the dead. And they didn't understand that. It's like, he just, what's so hard to understand about dying three days later, rise from the dead? Then, you know why? God hadn't revealed it to him yet. And even when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to these two guys that knew Jesus, they didn't recognize him. You know why? It hadn't been revealed yet. And so they're not, they're not going to understand these things by him just spelling it out to them. They weren't going to understand. They wouldn't have understood if Jesus would have told them, no, don't choose Matthias. I've got somebody I'm going to pick out later. You know, they're not going to know all these things. God does things in his time, in his way. He reveals things in, in his time and in his own way. And I believe that's what, I believe that's what happened here. And so we're going to see things that they do wrong in the book of Acts. Why is the Bible recording that? Because it's, telling, it's just showing us what they did. And I believe when we start connecting events that we see in the book of Acts with some of Paul's writings too, it helps us understand why Paul wrote what he wrote. But you've got to understand, while those things were taking place, they just they didn't know. Okay? They didn't know. And I think a great, a great way to illustrate what I'm talking about we're going to see later in the book of Acts um, the man by the name of Apollos. Remember when they, they found him, Aquila and Priscilla, they found him preaching knowing only the baptism of John. 
And so you know what? That guy, he was a good guy. What he was preaching was true, but there was actually a lot more to it. There was actually clear revelation that had been given, but nobody had given it to Apollos yet. And so Apollos, they, didn't get, they didn't go chew him out. They didn't rebuke him. When they heard him, they're like, hey, this guy's clearly saved, but nobody's told him yet. The details that have been revealed to us about Jesus, you know what they did? It says they expounded on him the way of God more perfectly. And then he got a hold of it, and then he started preaching it, like they said, more clearly, in greater detail. So there's a lot of things that we're going to see in the book of Acts that people, they're kind of doing it wrong. But this is because certain things haven't been revealed yet. And people will take those things that were, they're taking those things that were incomplete and they use it as precedent for why they're going to go do that stuff today and go keep certain Jewish feasts and things. No, that is not what you're supposed to do. They got away with it then because it hadn't been fully revealed yet. But ladies and gentlemen, it's been revealed to us now. We've got the whole Bible. Don't you go to the book of Acts and use that as an excuse to get caught up in Hebrew roots junk. That is not right, and that is a great mishandling of the Scriptures when you do that. And I think we'll see that clearly as we go through this. So with that, let's pray, dear Lord. I pray this message was a help to everyone. I thank you for this book and just the wonderful stories and inspiration we can get from it. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to take these stories uh, the way we're supposed to, the way you intended. Help us not to just read our own theology into them, but help us to learn uh, what uh, you intended to teach us and help us to uh, make proper application for our own personal lives and uh, uh, use it to form our doctrine uh, the way you intended. In your name we pray. Amen.